Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In 1998, 29 million people became overweight overnight. What? Stay tuned to hear all about that on The Reluctant Historian. I'm Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian. Dakota Lawson. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. We would like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement and recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. So, I don't really think you need to have a guess about today's topic, Dakota. Well, I just want to comment on uh, the 1998 everyone. Oh, I got it. Okay. So, I know the reason why everyone got fat in 1998. Okay? You mm-hmm. ready for this? Yep. Pokemon. <laughs> Is that when Pokemon came out? Pokemon Red and Blue for the Game Boy came out in 1998. Yeah. And... Everyone, everyone was playing it. To this day, I think it's still the highest-selling Pokemon game, which is ridiculous. So, Pokemon makes you fat. I guess so. Just like bread makes you fat, so does Pokemon. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, so I guess this is a part two to our last week. I don't think you said that, did you? No, I didn't say this was a part two. But I said it last week that we were having a Yeah, but like for people who might just be dropping in, they might be like, but why doesn't Dakota have to guess? Does she not respect his opinion? <laughs> his opinion as a man? I would say, no, I don't respect your opinion you know as what? a man. You know what? <laughs> me, me as this a white girl character, I just think that men need to be You're listened to more. This is my girl character. Oh, I see. I think that men need to be listened to more. Yep. How was that? That was good. Casually sexy? Stop it. <laughs> What's your gold nugget? I went to Slipknot on oh, Thursday. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Slipknot is a hardcore heavy metal band. And you're probably thinking, Dakota, what? I thought you were a country boy. And you, you like Pokemon. And I like Pokemon. You're a nerdy, a nerdy boy from the South who, you know... Uh, I don't know. Mary's his cousin. I was going to say that. No, no. I was going to say something like that, but I was like, people don't want to hear me say the phrase that I fucked my cousin. Ew. Because I don't. No, I don't want to hear that phrase. I told you. Well, that's why I said Mary. Much more (laughs) PG-13. Would you rather Mary fuck kill your cousin? Stop. (laughs) So the point is I don't fuck my cousin. Good. Yeah, I I enjoy heavy metal music. Uh, because I'm hardcore. Yep. Although I couldn't find any hardcore clothing in my uh, wardrobe. I know. I saw a picture of what you were wearing. And I was like, man, I should have dressed him before. You well, left. yeah. I, I wore a, <laughs> uh, a t-shirt. A white t-shirt. A white t-shirt with a um, uh, pocket. And out of the pocket, there is a cactus coming out. Mm, so and hardcore. I was, I, I was at this concert. And I was like, I am the most 
country bumpkin country bumpkin i just like i just don't fit in with that crowd you know yeah so but it was great it was great music uh it was very hardcore i i like my neck hurt the next day yeah, you're so old yeah and and my after the first uh opener i i texted you and i was like oh my knee <laughs> my knees are sore and then I, I said we should do more exercise, and you were like, "No." Well, no, I'm. I've just given in to the fact that I'm aging, and you're you're just trying to change me. I'm trying to make him healthy. Trying to make me less fat, no. which goes against the spirit of this episode. No. <laughs> also, you're not fat, so. Yeah. Thank you. So, what's your golden nugget? Uh, we have pretty much done the big ticket items we need to do around the house to get it ready to sell it. We have finished the carpet down here. We've painted down here. We painted upstairs. Yeah, uh, you spend the majority of the day. Yeah, I started at like 10 and yeah. we just finished and I want to die. I helped a bit. I, I didn't just like grab a beer and <laughs> be like, oh, get to it. Do I it. did tell him he needed to stop. He's not. I'm like, not good at we it. We both have our strengths and our weaknesses and Dakota's weakness is painting. Yeah. What's my strength? Being funny. Oh, I thought you were going to say lovemaking. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Sorry, he has two weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, I think I'm hitting the cord here. Yeah. I got to careful up. But yeah, you, you did a good job at painting. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I'm, uh, you know, in the spirit of um, taking care of one's body, yaddy, 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 yaddy. Body, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. Baba Yaga, Baba, Baba Yaga. Yaga. <laughs> Um, I really do think I need to get back into like walking. I used to walk for an hour every day. Like we would do like mm-hmm. 5k walks at lunchtime. It was lovely. Uh, and I would do yoga three times a week. And then this year, and for me, I mean, years are measured in the years of teacher years. So September is the start of my year. This year, I have sat on my ass the whole time and my body's falling apart. So. Well, last year too, right? No, 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 last year. That's what I mean. I was like, remember around... This Wait, time last year? I'm trying to think. Did you? No, you haven't only been at the online school since September. This online school. Last year, remember, I was with the baddies and we'd walk every lunch hour. Was that last that year? That was last year. These, these school years <laughs> are running together because I feel like you've been at the online school forever. <laughs> I've been at the online school for two years. Oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. That's right. Because you were at the online school with the baddies. Yes. Uh, which is what sh- she calls her friends feel free to email us and make fun of her uh okay that makes more sense now because you were with them but now then they uh left you yeah all alone yeah now i have the pod squad i have the pod squad yes um yeah so anyways i need to be more active is the moral of the story but i will say eating vegetarian i definitely feel like i have way more energy and my dave doesn't hurt as much yeah and I need well, we to... think that Becky might have an answer for us. Yeah, probably. She's vegetarian and they vegan. have... She's vegan. <laughs> uh, so we have not been... I need to reiterate if we've talked about this before. I... We are not eating vegetarian because we're hippies. Like our listener, Becky. <laughs> Stop it, Dakota! <laughs> but uh, meat is so goddamn expensive. It really is. And honestly, it's way better for the environment for us to not be eating meat and better for our bodies, I think. Okay, like, hippie. I just, like, don't call me a hippie because I know you feel good, too. Me, 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 me. <laughs> so, anyways, I still will eat meat, I think, if we can have it. But um, 
I don't feel deprived and I do feel like I I just feel like brighter and cleaner if that makes sense it's a weird description I think but yeah so the things I'll be sharing today I have heard over a multitude of sources but for this episode I did all of my research from one book called The Diet Free Revolution by Alexis Knassen um, which is not what historians should do but for this sake I didn't want to go all over and read like a bunch of different medical journals and this lady had um, read all the medical literature and just put it in a book so I was like perfect Ooh, sounds like laziness to me. Yeah, I'm not trying to say I wasn't being lazy. 100%, that's what I was doing. Oh. Well, yeah. shit, you got me there. Got you good, you fucker. <laughs> I don't want a large Faro. I want a liter of cola. <laughs> yeah, so if you're interested, you should read the book. It's really good. It's called... It's about... Um, yeah, so like if you struggle with the diet industry, it has some excellent activities um, that will help you to break out of the diet cycle. Oh, and I guess I'll just let you know as well, Dakota, this is a little bit more of a science-y episode, and we don't have Rhea here to be like, it's not a science. Well, I don't know why I'm giving Rhea that voice. It's not a science podcast. Yeah, so that's how Rhea sounds. Yeah. Anyways, so first things first, we need to recognize that dieting is the problem rather than the answer to our weight struggles. By continually going on diets, we get stuck in a cycle of delusion that our body is flawed and that because we're fat, we are helpless to care for ourselves. We get trapped in this idea that if we had just a bit more willpower, we could be successful. But it ain't true. Okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the diet industry binds us in cycles of disordered eating that only serves to fuel our inner critic. Believing in the false assumption that dieting will help us and is the path to salvation, we remain caught in a toxic relationship that encourages disordered eating, poor health, and shame. So I'm just going to skip over like three paragraphs here of writing because I'm exhausted and I don't really want to get into it but um there's this whole new thing that's happening in like diet culture that it's being called like wellness culture now so mm. it's like rather is this a good thing or a bad it's thing? a bad thing because oh. you know diet companies are really smart and they've paid lots of money to see what the consumer wants and the consumer less and less wants to be like going on a diet but they want more to say oh yeah i'm eating healthy so mm. for example like Weight Watchers, it's rebranded itself to WW, just meaning like wellness that works. So oh, I thought it was WW for Weight Watchers. <laughs> well, I think they kept the WW like iconically, but uh, yeah, they're supposed to be a, like a wellness company now. So it's uh, this whole thing that's happening in the diet industry. And so um, there's also an interesting uh, pipeline to QAnon from the wellness industry into QAnon. That's what a pipeline to QAnon is. Sorry, so, so explain that. Sorry, Weight Watchers is run by QAnon. Is that what you said? <laughs> no. Oh, no, sorry. No, that's no. what I took from that. That's fair. <laughs> that's good to ask for clarification. No. Um, the average consumer today doesn't want to be told that they have to go on a diet. They want to be told, oh, I'm eating healthy or it's a lifestyle change or I'm just like being better rather than I'm on a diet. Cause... Yeah, well, diets have become this negative connotation. Yes. So, so the diet industry is just shifting you're saying yeah so they're changing new marketing yeah they're changing the words to be like okay we're not a diet company we're a wellness company yeah and then i just randomly set a tangent that uh um one of the QAnon pipelines is the wellness industry so like oils um that can cure you mm -hmm. um like it's a it's a very strange pipeline i don't fully understand it but there's like very clear connections between like health and wellness 
to QAnon. So you're saying that the pipeline that was being built in in Canada is ran by QAnon. That's the one. (laughs) And also, this is a nice segue to say, if you're interested about QAnon, we have two parts. No, it's a one-parter. What? We only did one part on it. We only did one. Well, I'll be damned. (laughs) I, uh, uh... I thought that was one of our two two parters. No, we did a two parter right before it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you, it could have been a two parter. It was like I've, an hour and thir- twenty minutes. I fully believed it was two parts because uh, what an, uh, a person recently said to me that they listened to our QAnon episode, and I I was going to ask them, "Oh, did you listen to both parts?" Mm, and Good then they were like, "Where's the second part?" Yeah. Okay. Well, this is terrible. The point is, <laughs> we did a QAnon episode. We did. And that you one go was interesting. It. it was. Very aggressive on our part. It was, yeah. Rightfully aggressive, though. Yes. Continue. So let's get into the research on dieting and why they don't work. In 1959, a research study was published that suggested 95% of diets fail. This study is called The Results of Treatment for Obesity, if you're interested in reading it. But there is more research out there that indicates between 80 to 90% of dieters fail to achieve long-term weight loss and maintenance. In fact, the most predictable outcome of dieting is actually weight gain. An interesting study that paints a pretty bleak picture about this data is called the Look Ahead Trial. Ahead stands for Action for Health in Diabetes. Its researchers asked participants to diet and exercise. However, they also provided them with a ton of other support, things that the average dieter does not have access to. People in this trial had access to group and individual counseling and support from the research staff, They were given meal replacements at no cost to them. They had detailed customized meal plans and menus. They had access to exercise classes and support in developing an exercise routine. And in some cases, they even had the purchasing of gym memberships, home exercise equipment, personal training sessions, and weight loss medications. The participants inevitably regained weight during this study, which actually went on for nine years. And when they did gain the weight, they received even more support and were given access to more interventions like weight loss medicine and more intensive counseling. Wait, 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 sorry. I just want to clarify. Sorry, they were getting all of this and they gained weight? Mm Mm-hmm. So over nine years. So I would imagine that the study started off that they were getting all the support and they were like, okay, we've given you the tools. Now go off and live on your own. And then when they went off to live on their own, they, they gained back the weight. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then at that point, they were like, okay, here's more tools to be even more successful. Mm -hmm. But even with all of that, participants did not clear the benchmark set out as weight loss success. After approximately nine years in the study, participants maintained only 5% weight loss, falling short of the stated goal of 7%. So the researchers were like, we're going to prove through this study that people can successfully and maintain a 7% weight loss. And they just couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that was with literally all of the help. So imagine what a person without help can achieve weight gain yeah i was gonna say very little (laughs) but but it's it's the opposite of very little it's very a lot a lot of weight and the fact remains that this study is used to prove that people can maintain weight loss long term right and it's like and it and it ended up proving the opposite yeah pretty much dieting success stories are actually so uncommon that researchers have created an online database to study those rare people who have been able to lose and maintain weight loss long term The National Weight Control Registry includes over 10,000 success stories of people, including those who have undergone weight loss surgery, who have managed to lose at least 30 pounds and kept the weight off for at least one year. When you look at that number compared to the amount of people who go on a diet every year, which is like 40 million, Mm -hmm. the NWCR represents less 
than 1% of all dieters. Wow. However, the weight loss industry wants us to believe that the less than 1% is the actual norm, and that if we fail our diets, it is our own fault. When you look closely at these success stories, you actually see that the behaviors that people are engaging in aren't that healthy after all. People on the registry spend hours at the gym, track every calorie, and think about food and their body nonstop, which are all hallmarks of disordered eating. These success stories follow incredibly rigid and strict diets and often experience weight gain if they even slightly deviate from their diet. A 2017 study observed that people on the NWCR are engaging in the same types of behaviors observed in patients diagnosed with anorexia. Interestingly, the authors... I'll be the judge of that. (laughs) The authors of that study did not say that the people on the NWCR had anorexia and, and instead... They suggested that we may be able to apply the symptoms observed in thin people with chronic anorexia to unlock the secrets of long-term weight loss in fat people. So basically they're saying fat people should just be anorexic in order to achieve weight loss. <laughs> that's uh, that's fucked up. Super fucked up. When was that study done? 2017. Oh, that's that was five years ago. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like something they did in the 60s. Yeah. So but why don't diets work? Wait. Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, I was I, sorry. I was like, oh, I feel like when the teacher <laughs> asks you a question, you know, my biggest fear in life when they ask you a question and you're like, oh, oh, I don't know. Yeah. You know? Well, I'm not doing that to you. Oh, thank you. Okay. In actuality, there are a number of psychological and biological facts that make failing your diet and gaining weight back pretty much inevitable. In 1944, physiologist Ansel Keys created an infamous study called the Minnesota Starvation Study. The Minnesota Starvation Study. Study. Here, Keyes studied 36 mentally and physically healthy young men in order to study the effects of calorie restriction. The men were supposed to lose 25% of their body weight and went through different phases of calorie restriction. So that was their goal, lose 25% of your body weight. Oh, that's, that's a lot. Yes. In the most restrictive phase, they were fed just over 1,500 calories daily, which I'd like to point out is actually higher than what most diet programs advise. Most of them are like, eat 1,200 calories a day. That's crazy, because 1,500 is low. Yes. So most diets are like, do more than starve yourself. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. Uh, So what happened? Well, the men became obsessed with food. They dreamed about food, talked about food, collected recipes, and compulsively read cookbooks. (laughs) They're... they're (laughs) they're uh instead of them like they're in their room and somebody walks in and they're on their laptop pants down and stuff like that get out but it's just like a picture of like kfc menu or something like that 1944 cranking it oh oh this is 1944 sorry i thought we were still talking like 2017 stuff okay okay they just got like a they got a they're in their uh their camp and they got a picture of their best gal you think it's their best gal they're they're cranking it too but it's actually a picture of a chicken leg (laughs) Ooh, me and my best gal, chicken over here. I don't know. I I couldn't think of a more clever name for for the chicken. Yeah. So in addition to thinking about food all the time, the participants reported fatigue, weakness, weakness, loss of... They've just got weakness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they reported fatigue, weakness, loss of sex drive, irritability, and depression. When the men in the study were given more access to food in the rehabilitation phase, many started binge eating. And these were all men who had started the study as healthy and with no prior food issues or eating disorders. This study is a clear example of how restricting food intake, like how we do when we're dieting, makes us more preoccupied with food and more prone to binge eating. 
Rather than a lack of willpower on our part, this desire to eat is our body's healthy response to keeping us fed, nourished, and alive. Because for the majority of human history, we have been facing famines and lack of food until just recently. So it's very important that we can keep on our weight. Yes, we got to keep that meat to keep us warm in the winter. Yes. In 1975, researchers C. Peter Herman and Deborah Mack developed a theory called restraint theory, which explains why diets fail. Based on a series of experiments they did, restraint theory found that because diets rely on our willpower or self-discipline to work, rather than on actual cues from the body, dieters must create certain rules to follow that help control food intake. Dieters are vulnerable to overeating when these rules are disrupted by emotions, consumptions of forbidden food, or the perception of having overeaten. What this means is that when a dieter eats a forbidden food, they experience this sort of what-the-hell effect, meaning, okay, I had a piece of chocolate. Well, what the hell? I might as well eat a whole pizza. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've been there. And sometimes I did both. I, I ever had the chocolate pizza before? <laughs> There's a frozen pizza you can buy. I don't know if they still sell it, that it's uh, it's a chocolate pizza. It's made out of chocolate. Mm, that uh, sounds delicious. What, you have to say you have to share it with, uh, like, three people because it, it is... It, it is very rich. I would have eaten it myself, but I could not. Poor baby. Yes. So, when we attempt to restrict our food intake through dieting, what we are actually doing is making a way for excessive eating and a loss of control over our food intake. These rules that we create are not a very effective way to govern our eating. And this is because rulemaking, or cognitive control, as the scientists like to say, was never intended to rule over appetite. Dieting encourages all-or-none thinking, feelings of deprivation, guilt, shame, and mistrust in our bodies. For example, we hear our stomach growling and think, there's no way I should be hungry right now, and then we deny ourselves something when we crave it. To the chagrin of dieters seeking to lose weight, our body is not designed to do that. It is designed to keep our weight stable, especially to ensure that our weight doesn't get too low. When we lose weight, a complex series of events is set into action to encourage us to regain that weight. This strong biological system was developed through centuries of evolution to keep us alive during times of famine, which is a good thing. We want to stay alive and our body needs to be nourished and to run well. Those rules that we're trying to make are absolutely no match for our biology. That's why psychological techniques for behavior change doesn't actually help people lose weight. As much as we want to be like, I'm not going to eat it, I'm not going to eat it, that can't override like our actual body's mechanical drive to gain weight. Yeah, I feel like this episode is just, uh, it's affirming in me that when I want to eat something, I should just eat it. You should. You know, just like whatever I want at any time of the day, you know? Well. So thank you. Thank you for giving me. So yes, like this is called like intuitive eating what you're describing. And so once you get more in tune with what your body actually needs, you, the theory is I've never actually done intuitive eating or like tried to listen to what my body wants. But the theory behind that is that eventually you'll eat more of what your body needs to be healthy. That's interesting. I don't, I don't. No, and that can be changed because like obviously sugar is addicting as is fat. Yeah, well, it's tough because I mean, you know, uh, when I'm out and about and stuff like that, I think about what I'm, I'm like, oh, I need to put something in my body. And maybe this is just because, well, healthy food is, maybe I would eat more healthy food when I'm on the go, if it was easily accessible, but the world is Mm -hmm. designed to give you just shit food. So, Mm -hmm. like, if I'm out working and stuff like that, all I have, 
near me maybe it's a mcdonald's or something mm-hmm. like that it's uh, shitty what we need is more places that are uh you know quick places that you can get actual healthy food yeah like nutritious foods yeah yeah absolutely but the thing is too right like eat the mcdonald's we don't want. Oh, I do. Good. <laughs> I do. I do. With it's not like a. Oh, I shouldn't eat that. <laughs> Sometimes I get the salad at McDonald's. You know. Do you? <laughs> well, I haven't in a while, but I do really like their salad. Oh, I have never had a salad from McDonald's. They're delicious. Oh, <laughs> but I don't. I don't want the listeners to think. Uh, you know that I think I'm being healthy. The the salad there is really bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair, but I mean, bad. But you'd also, I guess, be getting like iron from the lettuce well mm. no depending on what the lettuce type is but so you might be getting some like vitamins that you it's, need. it's made out i think the lettuce is made out of chocolate actually so <laughs> mm, yeah. i see anyways so our body size is not a behavior we can't change it as much as we might want to lose weight and as much as we are taught that we should be able to exert control over our body our body is actually meant to guide us our weight is regulated by an intricate system of processes called a set point The best metaphor to understand it is to think of our body as a thermostat. If you set the thermostat to 21 degrees, if it gets warmer or hotter, then the house and the furnace will work to regulate the temperature back to that 21 degrees. The set point of weight is the same. The body will work to get you to your set point, whichever is right for you. Now, that can be manipulated if you've gone on lots of diets because... your metabolism might get fucked and then you're right well well uh, it's that's interesting I, i've heard about this before like your body just has a, a like the set point like you said because like for years i could i would never go above 140 or below it right like that was my my weight and, and if i did fluctuate at all which was like very rare it would always come back to that point mm-hmm. you know so uh it's weird for me now having this new set point which i'm I, I I guess would probably, be, and this doesn't sound like a big number, but it's for somebody who's been, uh, you know, 140 pounds for like ever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 160 now being my probable set point. Yeah. I haven't stepped on the scale in a while because it was, it made me sad the rest of the day. I know, because we live in a <laughs> fucked up culture. Yeah, yeah. So it's weird how you're... Um, and does like does age play into that? Like yeah. how your your set point changes over time? Mm-hmm. I think so, because mm-hmm. your metabolism changes over time, right? Based right. on like how you live and stuff. So yeah, um, I haven't read a lot about set point. I'm yeah. actually very interested in it. But it, yeah, it's an interesting concept. Yeah. So this set point activates a system of hormones that controls our appetite and metabolism. So if you fuck up your metabolism, it can fuck with your set point. Metabolism is the rate that our body breaks down food, turning it into energy. When we restrict our food intake with dieting, the metabolism slows down, requiring fewer calories for the body to run. And since the human body is built to survive, when we don't adequately nourish it, for example, when we're on a diet, it finds a way to make do with less. But life finds a way. That's right. (laughs) Thus, when one is on a diet, they will often feel like they have less energy, feel more irritable, and be unable to think clearly. In 1996, a groundbreaking study was published by Rudolf Leibel at Rockefeller University that looked at set point theory. The study included 18 obese, and I'm going to say obese with quotation marks around it, and 23 never obese participants who were admitted to the hospital and studied extensively in a controlled environment. Participants were kept secluded in the hospital for anywhere between three months to two years. What the fuck? Yeah. 
The lean participants, most of whom were students, were paid $40 per day for participating, and they generally checked out of the study after a few months. Seems like they're getting fucked. (laughs) That seems very low. (laughs) Just you wait. On the other hand, the obese participants were paid with only the hope of weight loss. Oh. Mm -hmm. What? (laughs) (laughs) And many of them stayed confined in the hospital for years working towards this goal. Wait, did they get to leave at all? Or it was just like... They could choose if they wanted to. But so the one of the morals of this research study is that like... How horrible is society and culture to make a person live in a hospital for two years on a liquefied diet Mm -hmm. with only the promise of losing weight? Yeah, and not, like, it's fucked up that they were, like, not that the $40 was a lot for the students and stuff like that, the never, the the never Never. fat. (laughs) (laughs) The never obese, yeah. Yeah, but... For them to skimp on the $40 that they could give to these Mm -hmm. obese people, like, that's just super fucked up and, like, I don't know if manipulative is the right word, but it's like... um, Well, I mean, they kind of were preying on the obese people's desire to lose weight. Just skeezy. Yeah. I mean, also at the same time, like, they signed up for the study. In 1996, we have a lot more ethical things you have to do when you're doing a research study, so... Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Participants in the study were given a liquid diet and underfed, so read starved, to lose 10 to 20% of their body weight. Results of this study indicated that people who had reduced their weight through dieting so that it fell below their set point had to eat much fewer calories, about 200 to 400 less, to maintain this body weight than would be expected for someone of the same body size who hadn't reduced their weight. So, for example, if you had gone on a diet and lost weight to be 160 pounds, and there was a dude who was just naturally 160 pounds, you would have to every day consume 200 to 400 calories less to stay at that 60, that 160 pounds. Sorry, 200 to 400 less than what? Um, I don't know what the less than what is, but like, okay, I'm, I'm assuming like less than maybe what you were normally eating or, or is like it, or less is it, than what or that is it less than what they were starving you at? Might've been that even like, too. Like if you were given like 1200 calories that you wanted were eating and then you had to just drop that down to a thousand or 800 like yeah could be i'm not 100 percent sure i didn't mm-hmm. like i said i didn't read these studies i could have if i wanted to i didn't um but the, the the main takeaway is that once you fuck with your set point you have to continually restrict yourself to maintain that weight so if I lose weight and I get to, and I eat, let's say I've eaten 1500 calories for a whole year mm-hmm. and I get to my weight, yeah. eventually by only eating 115 or 1500 calories, that won't be enough. I'll have to restrict it again. Right. Wait. Okay. So let me ask this and uh, maybe you said this, but I just wanted some clarification with your set point. Is there a way, not saying this is a good idea, but is there a way to get it so your set point was, say, and I'm not going to do this because I love cheeseburgers, but <laughs> uh, w- like, theoretically, would there way be a way for me to reset myself to 140 and just stay that way? Or is it just like, your new set point is just your new set point? Yeah, so I don't know the answer to that. Mm. I have seen books that talk about your set point, and yeah. I think they talk about resetting it. Um. But I would question 
the science behind it. I don't know. And to to do that, you would have to feed into a lot of these unhealthy habits the, through like dieting and stuff like that to, yeah. to get myself so I was consistently if I was a, to reset myself back to 140 I would have to restrict myself in so many ways for however long if it's even possible that it it just yeah but the thing about that is, yeah. is that it's yeah you'd have to restrict yourself and then as soon as you stop restricting yourself you'd go back to 160 right so 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 then theoretically like we don't know the exact answer but then you don't have a you can't go to a lower set point yeah i mean i don't know i would Mm -hmm. i would wager no Mm -hmm. because it's very linked to your metabolism and once you fuck up your metabolism you can't really get it back i'm about to talk about that in a few seconds here yeah, my so. metabolism owed me some money, so I beat the shit out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what this tells us is that metabolism slows after weight loss, so the body becomes more efficient at holding on to energy, and thus, to stay at a lower weight, a person needs to consume fewer and fewer calories. Research has also indicated that for people who have dropped below their set point weight, their body sends other signals to make them feel hungrier, have more intense food cravings, and regain weight. So even once you get below your set point... Um, your body's going to be like doing other weird things to make you be eating. What What do you mean it's going to be doing weird things? to? Like... So it says it, it sends other signals to make you feel hungrier and have more intense food. <laughs> just going to uh, give you some other signals. It'll like send a signal down to your wiener. <laughs> just give you <laughs> random boners. Be like, come on, eat it. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll give you weird, awkward boners. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. So a study of the contestants of The Biggest Loser also confirmed and built on this set point theory. Do you know The Biggest Loser? Oh, Jillian? Of course. Yes, so she's the worst. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so interestingly, interestingly, this wasn't the first study of The Biggest Loser. One study in 2012 found that watching The Biggest Loser increased anti-fat attitudes in viewers. So watching it made you hate fat people. Really? Yeah. Huh. Oh, do you get into why or... Uh, that's just what the study said. Oh, I'm in, I, I'm curious about that. Is it, um, maybe be, oh, okay, here, let's just speculate a little bit of why people would watch it and not like the fat people. It, like, maybe. Well, I think, like, it glorifies the losing of the weight, and I think it proves that, like, fat people, like, I don't necessarily think that the contestants were ever portrayed in like a positive and no, glamorous light and if they're if they're struggling or if they're like you know fuck this i'm i don't want to do that workout or i'm having a tough time with this you know the person watching on their couch doing nothing could just easily judge them and go oh you lazy mm-hmm. asshole or something like that mm-hmm. like so easy to judge when you're not in that situation mm-hmm. in 2016 researchers from the national institutes of health assessed some of the contestants six years after the show was filmed and found that participants had significantly slower resting metabolism than when the show started. So we knew this already, that metabolism slows with weight loss, but what was striking about this research was that the metabolism was slower still six years after the initial weight loss, and it hadn't returned to what it was before the show. So in terms of set point, that um, when you were asking, like, can you manipulate your set point to be lower? I don't think so because it's so tied to metabolism and so Mm. this metabolism slows down as you lose weight sorry i always get mixed up is the lower metabolism is that you hold on to your weight you want to a fast metabolism burns energy faster so you lose weight faster 
Oh, so, so okay, so what you're saying is after they did the show, even six years later, they had a harder time losing weight. And their metabolism was slower than it was before they went on the show. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, along with this revelation, the study found that their body was sending them signals to increase their appetite. Leptin, sometimes referred to as the satiety hormones, is released by our fat cells based on how much we've eaten and signals our brains that we've had enough to eat. At the season finale of The Biggest Loser, when contestants were at their lowest weight, their levels of leptin, which were normal prior to starting the show, were almost zero. So they were just constantly in a state of hunger. Oh. And they didn't have the hormone that would regulate their appetite. So they would just uh, always feel hungry. Is this show still on? No. Uh, good. Their leptin levels did increase over time as contestants regained their weight. But at the six-year follow-up, they were still not back up to where they had been at the start of the show. Finally, dieting also triggers intense food cravings. However, the cravings reported by dieters are often more frequent, more intense, difficult to resist, and slower to disappear than cravings experienced by non-dieters. And one study found that dieters will eventually eat the craved food in about 70% of instances. So all of those things that I just finished telling you proves to us that our body just doesn't want us to lose weight and has built in a ton of safeguards to ensure that we don't. Yeah, so anytime anybody tells you you can eat, like, this is to anyone listening that uh, you should uh, uh, lose weight. Just say, no, my body said no. doesn't want me to. <laughs> but like truthfully, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what about the idea that obesity is bad for your health? You know, people are, are like, oh, that fat person, they're going to die from heart disease. Yeah. I, I mean, I can say that, that like there's this uh, Instagram person you follow and you have her book that she's like she's a bigger girl but she's like super fucking healthy and does like oh yeah she's you yeah, know, yeah yeah um um oh shoot what is her name megan Ma- megan trainer no she's um she's she is fucking crazy she is yeah she's probably like uh she's a big girl uh but she is a crossfit athlete and yeah. like, competes at very high levels of crossfit and i'm like oh i could never do what she does <laughs> like, what? no but i mean if you trained you know like yeah well, exactly you, exactly like like maybe you wouldn't you know lo- lose weight maybe, maybe you would who knows but like you could still be healthy your, be healthy and be able to paint a room without dying yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so public health campaigns warn of the risks of fatness and they link higher weight to everything to cancer to diabetes to heart disease to depression to early death The media would have us believe that our weight is directly responsible for these health issues. However, the research paints a different picture and is less clear than what the general public believes. Yes, there is research that says a heavier person may have heart disease or diabetes, but what it doesn't take into account is something called confounding variables that influence the relationship between weight and health. In research, this can make two things seem related, when in fact, there is a third variable that is responsible for the relationship. So I'm going to give you an example that the book gives that I love. Did you know that there is a strong association between increased ice cream consumption and murders? What? Wait, sorry. You consume ice cream, you want to murder. Yeah, basically. And so this is an actual data point that is existence and I'm not making this up. There is a there is a proof that more eating ice cream equals more murders. Oh, shit. <laughs> I think I need help, guys. My <laughs> wife loves ice cream. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what's actually missing here is an important data point. 
Ice cream doesn't necessarily turn people into violent killers. What is really at play here is the warm weather. So that's the third data point. Mm. A lot of research documents higher homicide rates in the summer when people are more likely to be out and about doing things like buying ice cream and killing people. That's fair. I mean, me personally, you know, winter, it gets really cold here. It's freezing cold in the in Canada during the winter. So I, I stay inside. But like when it's summertime, I'm just like, I'm going to go get some DQ and fucking kill that guy. <laughs> Love it. Love that for you. Thank you. Stop it. So in terms of weight and health, making the assumption that fat equals unhealthy leaves out many other variables such as weight stigma, internalized weight bias, health behaviors like fitness, socioeconomic status, and race. Many of these intersect with one another, which can all affect one's health. So, for example, doctors believe fat people are unhealthy. That's just something that they think. They've been fed the Kool-Aid. So when a fat person comes to them saying something hurts, they are often told to lose weight and then they'll feel better, Mm -hmm. not looking at the actual underlying issues for someone's pain. So, for example, with my hernia, my doctor is great. He is not one of these doctors. He didn't think that it was... um, he Wait. didn't just, he didn't think I was just fat. Yeah. So, but when I went to get the ultrasound that he had ordered to see what this lump on my chest was, because it's an Audi hernia, um, the ultrasound technician and the doctor at the ultrasound was like, oh, this is just fat. You just have fat on your body. And I was like, okay, but like, that doesn't make sense that it would show up overnight and that yeah. it would be painful to the point of like, I'm crying. Yeah. So... You know, if that had been, like, a cancerous tumor... Yeah, then they're not doing their fucking job. Right, and so... And then I'd have to sue. Right, and so there's this assumption because... And then maybe I'd die because of cancer. So it's not the f- necessarily that because I'm fat, I had cancer and died. It's because the doctor thinks that my pains are because I'm fat mm-hmm. rather than because of the cancer. I don't know if I'm making sense here. But anyways, so they're missing that third variable. Yeah. The point is uh, doctors need to get their head out of their ass when Mm -hmm. it comes to you know weight i guess yeah and i mean all of us do absolutely but doctors (laughs) what i'm saying is fuck doctors (laughs) just kidding or am i i don't know so the book that i've been referencing goes on to explain what internalized weight bias different health behaviors etc can look like and i won't go into it here but again the book is a great read so i would recommend checking it out So last week, Dakota, I talked a bit about the BMI and how it's not to be trusted. Oh, no, you never trust the BMI. So where does that come from? Well, it's complicated, but it starts out with anti-black racism. Some of the origins of fat phobia can be traced back to the slave trade and race science, a system to classify races as superior and inferior. White people who created the categories of race science, put themselves at the top of the racial hierarchy in order to rationalize the kidnapping and enslavement of black people. Oh, damn. Yeah, have you heard of race theory, race science? Race theory or race science? Race science. No, I've only heard about race theory, where the theory is that races do exist. <laughs> okay, so race, <laughs> race science is from like the 1800s. Um, and it was kind of, it was used a lot by imperialist societies mm. to be like, we deserve to go conquer these other places because we are better than them. And here's the science to prove it. And they just like made up science to be yeah, like, here we go. fucking stupid. <laughs> yes. So um, that also is where the BMI comes from. It's like being like, uh, I'm going to make up a, a guitar uh, science, guitar science to, to prove who is the best guitar player of them all. But I think they're I'm probably- going to put myself at the top. <laughs> James Hetfield of Metallica, he's like 
second, you know? Yeah, so the for your science, the best guitar player data is by people who don't play guitar. I don't know where I'm going here with this. The point is <laughs> that I don't know what I'm talking about, just like they don't know what they're That's talking right. about. That's right, it's true, Because right. I don't know how to play guitar, and they don't deserve to conquer other people. <laughs> That's true. I like that point. Thanks, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, but yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So they use this race science to say, you know, we're better so we can enslave black people. Mm -hmm. So to start, skin color was used to differentiate the races. However, as more interracial couples began to have babies in the colonies, it was less easy to determine who was white enough to be considered the right type of person. So body characteristics had to be considered. Body size was one of the predominant ones, and blackness was associated with a robust body size, especially for women. To differentiate themselves in the late 18th century, white people started to embrace a thin ideal that also embodied the Protestant ethics of self-control and restraint. Science supported these prevailing cultural norms around race with the development and creation of fields like anthropometry and craniometry, which sought to identify physical differences between races and keep on with the hierarchy that they had created. The BMI was developed as a part of this science. In the 1830s, Belgian academic Lambert Adolphe Jacques Quillette developed the Quillette method to study white Western European men's bodies, which he considered to be the ideal. Doesn't mean that they were the ideal, he just said that they were. <laughs> 100 years later, in 1972, the Quillette method was adapted and renamed the Body Mass Index, or the BMI, by Ansel Keys, the Minnesota starvation guy. Like Quillette, Keyes only used data from white Anglo-Saxon populations to develop the BMI. Then, in 1985, the National Institutes of Health took this formula designed as a statistical tool to measure white populations, and they started to use it instead to define obesity on an individual level. It's not a measure of health. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, because, like, again, I'll talk about my, you know, fitness phase and stuff like that. I, you know, BMI was at that thing time was a thing that I trusted, <laughs> you know, a thing that I, I looked to. And actually, I think I had a, uh, uh, don't worry, this thing wasn't as expensive as my ab cream. <laughs> uh, I had this, uh, it was kind of like tongs. Oh, um, you had um, calipers. I guess it like you, you have to like, oh my God, you, you stick to your fat. And yeah. You, you just like, uh, Basically, you take tongs to your yeah, yeah, tummy. Yeah, I know what you're talking no, about. No, I know, but I'm explaining for listeners oh, that you sorry. take tongs to your tummy and clip it on, and then it'll tell you how fat you are. How fat you are, yeah. and especially at the time, it was very low for me. But it, it uh, uh, it's interesting to hear that it's bullshit. Yeah, yeah, because I yeah, it was something that I think is still. I mean, if you look up on I I I bet even on like bodybuilding.com, which is a huge oh, resource. Doctors still use it to, yeah. to clarify who's healthy and unhealthy. That's crazy. Yeah. The CDC cautions that the BMI does not distinguish between fat, muscle, bone density, and fat distribution. It consistently overestimates the risks for certain racial groups, such as black people, and severely underestimates risks for others, like Asian people. So basically, the whole idea that if you have a high BMI, you're at risk for, um, you know, cancer, maybe. Mm -hmm. So more because it's so racialized, it's based on just white people. Um, different groups are going to have 
different um, – going to be categorized differently on the BMI. Mm-hmm. And so then they're not going to be checked for certain diseases because they're like, oh, well, you're, like, in this section of the BMI, so therefore you aren't at risk for this disease. Oh, that's stupid. Yeah. Yet, it still remains the most commonly used measure to assess health. And – in 1998, the NIH decided to lower the BMI cutoff uh, for the classification of overweight, oh. causing 29 million people to move from the category of healthy to the category of overweight overnight. So it wasn't Pokemon. No. This decision was made with the International Obesity Task Force, an organization funded by pharmaceutical drug companies that manufacture weight loss drugs. Because, hey, if all of a sudden 29 million new people are now overweight, they can now be sold drugs to help them lose that weight. Jesus. Mm -hmm. A similar decision was made in 2013 when the American Medical Association decided to classify obesity as a disease. In considering these decisions... Wait, when was this? 2013. Uh, Why is our society backsliding? In considering these decisions, the AMA had a group of members who met with the American Council on Science and Public Health. They studied the issue for more than a year and concluded that obesity should not be classified as a disease. In their report, they stated the flawed nature of the BMI and the fact that some people with obesity do not experience elevated health risk. And some, in fact, demonstrate protective factors, which is called the obesity paradox. If you want me to tell you about that, I can However, the AMA went against these recommendations of its own advisory board. So they had, like, created this group to be like, we want obesity to be a disease. Make it happen. And then the board was like, no, it's not a disease. And they're like, fuck you. It's going to be a disease anyways. So they rejected the findings of this committee and decided to move forward, passing the resolution to classify obesity as a disease. The resolution was introduced and pushed forward in part by the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists an organization with close ties to the pharmaceutical and bariatric surgery industries, Mm. both of whom now benefit from this classification because it has expanded insurance coverage for bariatric surgery and weight loss drugs. So if you can classify something as a disease, insurance can be like, oh, okay, we'll pay for that. So more people can have those drugs. Right. It also now encouraged doctors to recommend surgery and weight loss drugs because, hey, now obesity is a disease and diseases need treatment. So I don't know how to end this episode, so I'm just going to say, so Dakota, what do you think? <laughs> that was uh, abrupt. <laughs> yeah. Did you want to know what the obesity paradox is? Now nah, we're running long. Oh, okay, but I want to tell you. Just let me, I'll be very quick. Jesus Christ. I'll be Go very, ahead. very quick. Okay, okay, so there's this, because right, like all of this science in quotation marks is like fat people are sick and are going to die but when fat people get diseases that could detrimentally affect them they usually survive better than skinny people because they've got fat on them to keep them healthy so it's like this thing where they're like oh you should die but you didn't but why is that skinny person dying they're supposed to be healthy so that's the obesity paradox okay i'm done that was actually kind of interesting uh yeah I, i'll be the judge of that i'll be the judge of that i thought it was uh good uh i it was it's gonna be a similar rating to a little bit lower than last week but uh just it was a little bit more sciencey yeah yeah and and uh i felt like um last week just uh the conversation was really flowing you know so um not to say this one wasn't but uh um but yeah i think just the sciencey nature of this uh not as high uh i found the bmi thing that it's uh uh, the B stands for bullshit. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I thought that was interesting, you know, because of how that is still so trusted. Yeah. 
which is stupid. Um, and then, uh, you know, in this episode, I learned that, you know, go ahead. Yeah. So I, it makes, I've lived with diet culture for so long yeah. and it's such a hard thing to be like, I will probably never lose weight because I still kind mm. of like hold on to that glimmer of like hope that one day I'll be skinny. So doing this research, I was like, oh. But I think it's that that's a little the, crushing. Yeah, but that's the problem, right? Like, we need to get out of that mindset that we need to be skinny, right? Mm-hmm. Like, my, I just had a whole bunch of CT scans done because of we don't know what's going on with Dave. Um, Her hernia. Yeah. My inside organs, my life giving organs are all perfectly fine. Like, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with me. I have no, being fat isn't a detriment to my health, but yet I still like, crave being skinny i don't know yeah yeah i mean well that's just what society has told you you want you know if you Mm -hmm. go like on instagram or whatever you know you don't uh other than you know the 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 fat positive it just sucks that our society is you need to look a certain way when the way you look is just fine yeah and like all people should be treated as respected and worthy of being a person regardless of what they look like to quote dr seuss a person is a person no matter how small or something like that (laughs) 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 this is uh this uh, podcast has turned into uh, turned into uh support for uh little people actually (laughs) sorry i can't just be perfect be not it's dummy i can't be not a dummy anyways my rating is seven okay point eight sexy chicken thighs <laughs> out of ten <laughs> <laughs> that one got you <laughs> i like it yeah yeah <laughs> I wasn't expecting it, so I'm no, like, I'm no. Here for I was, it. I was really trying to think about uh, back to my KFC masturbation joke, and I was like, that one just came to me just a second ago. So. I loved it. I loved yeah. it. it was so good. Yeah. Yeah. And after this, I'm gonna eat a whole pizza to myself with a whole fuck ton of cheese on it. Yeah. Fuck you, diet industry. And, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the same, but no, no. I was gonna make a joke about having sex with pizza, but I'm <laughs> I'm not. You can leave this in. I just you know just let, let people know how my mind works. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. take us out, dear. Well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please download our podcast from wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review or tell your friends about us because indie podcasts really do grow through word of mouth. And if you want to stay in contact, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian, on Facebook under The Reluctant Historian Podcast, or you can leave us a tip at buymeacoffee.com slash thehistorian. You can also shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted to thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So, we'll see you next week, same time, same place, for Wicked Wednesday. Wicked Wednesday. And remember... A person is a person, no matter how chunky. Oh. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.